0: Good evening, everyone. My is Peter Smith. Um, I'm the promoter of Justice and Peace for the Archdiocese, and I, I welcome you all here this evening. I'm also the parish priest of St. Columbus in Mykart North. And I'm very grateful, I must say, for both of those roles. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, on whose land we meet, the oldest living culture in our world. We pay respects to the Elders past, present, and, religion, and we pray and we work for the betterment in our society. I've just been a part of the Archdiocese going through a Reconciliation Action Plan. I don't know if you noticed the artwork on the on the back wall over there that we had commissioned for our Reconciliation Action Plan. and um, the explanations on the wall over here. So it's a symbol of how we've committed ourselves as an Archdiocese to Reconciliation I guess it's not about artworks, it's about the way that we live and work and all that I'd like to welcome you here tonight. Uh, is a really good opportunity. I, I should mention, first of all, we are live streaming. So if you don't want to be seen, or you probably won't be, just in the chair. I don't think it's so much during in the, the audience as the speakers tonight. So I'd like to welcome our panel tonight. We, we're very lucky to have this group of people who are experts in this concept of how do we think about just war theory in our modern How do we think about war and peace? How do we think about a way forward to a more ironic world? So firstly, I'd like to welcome Senator uh, Deborah O'Neill. Welcome, Senator. Um, I'll for My family stuff. never do that. <laughs>
1: um
0: I just read a little bit of her bio. Uh, Senator Deborah O'Neill is a Labor Senator for New South Wales. Deborah first entered federal politics in 2010, when she was elected as the member for Robertson on the central coast of New South Wales. She has been a member of the Senate since 2013, has been a member of the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade since that time. Before entering federal parliament, Deborah was a high school teacher on the central coast. The best part of three decades. She was also a lecturer in the School of Education at the University of Newcastle, where she coordinated courses in teacher education. In addition to her teaching background, Senator O'Neill owned a successful long-going business, long-going business with her husband. Here's the, here's the bit that I need to ask you about, Senator. It says: Deborah is reported to carry two items in her handbag. Rosary Beads, a copy of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Is that correct? It oh, is correct. Okay. I'm editing now, but I suspect that those two things are not unconnected. Susan is a male of mine, and she's just done fabulous work with the Sisters of St Joseph. I'm more mean, of her. So, Sister Susan Miley is a sister of St Joseph, with a long-standing association with the Phil Institute of East Timor Studies. She is the author of *East Timor*, *Rene Girard*, and *Neo-Colonial Colonial Violence*: Scapegoating as Australian Policy. The titles are mouthful. The book is wonderful, Susan. I really loved reading it. The price it is there's not too many
2: people who say
0: that. Bloomsbury. Oh. Bloomsbury. No, it's a great. It really is a great work because you know our history with East Timor, Timor state has just been horrendous. And there have been so few advocates in this nation for it. Susan has stepped up and she has been in there for the fight, for the long hauling. Uh, Susan, the Catholic Church, the Sisters of St Joseph, and I think society in general, is so glad to have you as an advocate for Timor-West Day. And um, finally, but not by um, way any ways less, is Father Claude Mostovic. Claude's uh, a priest with the Missionaries of the Sacred Heart, director of the Missionaries of the Sacred Heart Justice and Peace Centre, and has been president of Tax Christie Australia for. long? To through Forever. Claude has, has <laughs> been a great advocate always with Pax Christie, and he would be surprised, of, of course, and has been just in there fighting in the sense of raising the profile of the need for peace in our world. Um Christie Christian movement was so strong here uh, in the eighties when we were as much more aware than what we've become. But I think that people like Claude and his associates have continued to keep the notion of peace on our radar. So Claude, well, thanks for your great work too. So just a little background for to tonight. Um you know we're reading a lot in the media at the moment around China and other aspects of war, the terrible things that are going on in the Sudan, we've been experiencing Afghanistan, where we had that pullout after 20 years. Some of us who are old enough remember Vietnam. It sometimes it seems as though the world is always at war. Since very, very early times, back to Greek philosophy, back to people like Socrates and Aristotle, who talked about the need for a state to go to war at times. That has continued throughout. It was picked up in our Catholic tradition from very early times. Augustine they talked about a just war theory. In other words, there are times that we need to go to war. As it evolved over the centuries, it fell into two categories. The English justice in going into a war and justice in the engagement of war. Pope Francis... Uh, has repeatedly said, and especially in his his encyclical Fratellite Duty, is trying to reconsider the possibilities in our world of there ever being a just war. Now, just war theory talks about when you go into a war, there has to be a proportionality. In other words, you are trying to reject an unjust aggressor. You should only use the same amount of force should also ensure that the kind of armaments that you have are just and fair. And in the war itself, there are so many things that, for example, protecting the innocent, making sure that prisoners are treated well, that there is repatriation after the war, and, and so on. But Francis has suggested that in modern warfare, very few of those things are actually possible. I think back to the Vietnam War. I was only a little kid, but um, friends of mine and their, and their parents had gone to Vietnam. And one of the things that had changed that was that it was the first time in the world where the war was actually broadcast on your TVs that night. So we were seeing what our troops were doing instantaneously. So that was, it was quite a revelation, you know? When just war theory, was first started back in the Middle Ages, formalised by the church, It was about one king with his army charging out to meet another army. And you can understand how just war theory made a whole lot of sense. Now, I wonder how much sense it makes. We cannot protect the innocent. We cannot ensure that there is ever proportionality. These are the things that our speakers will address tonight. A few months ago, a friend of mine sent me a... Video of a woman who was sitting in Washington, D.C., in a bunker underneath the Pentagon. She was in civilian clothes and she had these three or four monitors around her. You could hear the, the speakers that she had on headsets and she was communicating with people in Iraq. The voice that she heard coming through the speakers was Target Recognized. You saw a jeep coming down a dirt road. The next one was target acquired, target confirmed. You see me typing on the keyboard. Then press the button, and from her perspective, which was a drone flying over the area, by the rocket which detonated and blew up the jeep. I found that chilling enough. Yeah. In a sense, what I found more chilling was that she then turned off the screens, turned off her computer, went over to the back seat, she put on her she picked up her handbag, and she walked out. She returned to her family and children. The whole thing had been banned on Washington, D.C., Loma, the Jeep, and Presumably, an insurgent in Iraq. War has changed. And Francis points that out and says, Well, new war, new rules, new ethics. What we're concerned So, I'd like to introduce the Senator to you, who's going to speak to us this evening. Thanks very much. And I just acknowledge that uh, I'm very pleased to be here with you on the land of Ed Cookman, your nation, and my respects to elders past and present. I also acknowledge
1: uh, the Legans, each one of you in your own way, the community that you serve. I'm very privileged to be here with Father Peter, Father Lord, and Sister Susan uh, this evening and uh, I just wanted to give you a few, few thoughts uh, and I'm happy to take questions as we move towards the discussion around some of my experiences um, with international forum where we've been discussing. Realities and challenges of this time. But uh, to begin the reflection, uh, just in recent days, there's been a release of the defence strategic review. We've heard a fair amount about it in the press media. Um, it's, a, it's a review that uh, has been commissioned decades later from the most the previous one was decades earlier. So things have changed a lot, and I think. Uh, in Peter's opening remarks indicated a challenge that the Holy Father has put to us about what does war, what could just war, what could better efforts for peace look like in this particular context. Australia is reviewing the context too, where we find ourselves with power shifting around the world. Um, it was an item of business for the new government, uh, considering in the first 100 days to get that boom, because of geostrategic realities that we became aware of, not just on committee to government, but as a partner in one of the most important committees that operates in our parliament, which is shorthand PJCIS, but it's the Intelligence Committee. Uh, it's a very collegial committee. It is very, very rare for anything to emerge from that committee that is disputed it is a unifying position in the national interest that is always sought. There are a couple of committees in Parliament that I the way, and I'm on the Privileged Committee, which is another one that does that, which is in the service of Senate and how it works. But the key frames that informed the defence strategic review of Australia were these peace, security and prosperity. And this is the language that I am hearing. At ASEAN, for example, these are the words that were the key words repeated over and over by multiple participants right across the Southeast Asian region. Prosperity has some appeal to all peoples, regardless of your disposition to the world. Certainly security is something we all understand. And peace, central to our considerations tonight, in a, in a discussion about war. Um, there were six key priorities that were identified. One of them you'd be very familiar with, it's a focus of much mania is the, the substill, the steel, and the manufacturing munitions of, you know, the growth of an industry in Australia for jobs, the creation of munitions, we've seen that before in the history. Um, we've got the orientation to the worth, we've got a, a the defence workforce as the fourth item. Fifth is the challenge and opportunity of the UTEP in the Australian industry. And finally, one I thought that was particularly important to our discussion tonight, uh, diplomatic defence partnerships. Why is that so important to our discussion? Because in my view, the best chance we have for peace is to move towards a much enriched capacity as democracies with other like-minded democracies multilateral form. It's very challenging because every conversation we have has to traverse different versions of what democracy And there are people who ought to be living in a country that's democracy that we might consider not democratic because for historical and cultural reasons their democracy looks very, very different from ours. One of the great things about democracy it can be reshaped in many, many ways and it allows us the space to reflect the cultural practices and the traditions of the places in which it operates. But multilateralism, with all of that difference to, tra- to traverse every single time to get together, and the languages that we have to cross, the language barriers, very inefficient by comparison to a country with a single leader that can unequivocally plan for five, 10, and 15 years, and know that there will be no change in policy and funding allocations for the sort of growth that they want to undertake, whether that's for peace or potentially for war. So we have a great challenge to reach out to others and find a voice for peace. And it doesn't happen for free. And if I can just sort of put a pet peeve on the record, so much time has to be spent in the air it is expensive for Australians to travel overseas to build and maintain our ships. And every time somebody travels, there's a story about how much it's cost, where they've been. Relationships cost in every possible way: investment of time, investment of talent. And for us in this beautiful, isolated continent—the smallest continent in the world—we have to travel. And I would put to you, and I am putting to my colleagues, that Australians. Our parliamentarians, cultural leaders need to be travelling so much more into our region in particular, in the, in the um, Indo-Pacific, to build and maintain those rela- relationships in the course of peace. Democracies working in are critical as a counterweight to hegemonic policy. And if we don't engage, we are actually guilty of creating the conditions. The establishment of war ambitions and the action that leads to war. We see soft war being waged at the World Trade Organization. um, Australia was one of the most attacked nations in terms of coercive practice by the Chinese uh, when they put false anti dumping claims before the World Trade Organization. But we've heard about barley, lobster, wine, coal. The rule of law that is embedded in these international institutions, such as the World Trade Law Organization, really puts of peace to respect the rule of law and the movement of goods and services around the world. When that becomes profoundly destabilised, the risk of war increases. Not about a single act of aggression, it's about the hollowing out of every institution that supports war that we we'll need to be mindful of. What a remark! make a couple of remarks about the cyber dimensions of that? We're talking about what's new in a defence strategic review now that wasn't there 50 years ago. Espionage uh, has been around forever, but the capacity to see and to know, to hear, to understand and to infiltrate with both misinformation and disinformation is a newly uh, into the form of that is incredibly powerful and a threat to peace. Uh, the disinformation uh, campaigns that are facilitated by excellent technology skills, uh, and a lot of, a lot of this, um, according to people that I've met in, in Russia, are um, bots, for example, that look for all intents and purposes in your Facebook feed like a real individual that use uh, linguistic capacities to replicate the cadences of ordinary speech in very sophisticated forms. These are infiltrating forces that have incredible power to deliver disinformation and disinformation, to find targets that are vulnerable. And We have seen the radicalisation of young Australian people, both to the left and to the right, because of the success of this kind of infiltration our peace seeking, peace loving country. Now, it finds an easy home amongst people who do not share in the wealth of the nations of this world. If you have a job, if you have a full belt, if you have a roof over your head, if you have access to health services, all the things that underpin and are articulated in the sustainable development. It is much harder for people who want to disrupt the peace of our time to find soldiers for their cause. But we do know that it, both in Australia and profoundly in one of our very significant outcomes, and that's the US, that the gap between the and border is increasing, not decreasing. I think we can see from the way that uh, interactions with the media is occurring that. Warming people up to hold a view that's separate from others, the ascendancy of rights above one or the other, it's creating the kind of foment that feeds aggression, separation, isolation. And it's exactly the opposite on a micro level of the, like, the multilateralism, what I'm talking about. There are more barriers between us than just the between countries, the challenges of speaking a different language. There are barriers for generations and access to life. There are barriers that are socioeconomic. There are barriers about people who have a people who don't. When all those barriers when they multiply and become a burden for society, we all become far more at risk. Um, Peter referred to St. Augustine and uh, the idea of this just rule, obligation to achieve or maintain peace then one the fundamental principles that underpin any concept of what might be just law, waged by the legitimate authorities. Prior to that time, Cicero talked about a set of assumptions that I think we still want to believe exist. That is that you know, there are breaks on people wanting to go war. He Cicero asserted that nature is biased against war, and that human reason is against war. I would put to you today that there's no experience of war other than the mediated climate that people referred to, for people who watched those chilling images from the, the Vietmanese war, or people who saw it last year, and it is last year now, think about how many it is since you've seen images of what kind of People have very little conceptual understanding of what war is. The collective memory of suffering from the Second World War that saw the establishment of the United Nations. The reveal of evil that existed in that time, that was lived by people suffering grief and loss. That is not known in the same way happily in this generation. But it also creates a knowledge deficit about what war really is. when that lack of experience and understanding of war, when we fail to teach and engage people in history in a way that helps them connect at a deep level with that suffering that is signature of war, When that is amplified by an increase in disinformation about war. when it's amplified further by increasing we're facing extremely challenging times, very challenging times. I'll, I'll close with this and look forward to further, further conversation. I was, in, um, I was in Cambodia as the head of the delegation for the Australian government, following the ASEAN talks last year. And uh, I sought out bilaterals, particularly with Ukraine and Poland. And uh, there were many chilling stories that were told, and I'll talk to that a little more if you're interested. One of the most sad moments uh, that was revealed to me by the the Ukrainian delegation was their horror at the fact that Russian propaganda had been so effective inside Russia and so sealed off was the media market that uh, six or seven months into the war, there was an increase in support for the war in Russia, despite the number of deaths and despite the fact, if I just roll you back, that was when the conscription was just beginning. So despite all those things going on, an increase to 88% support in Russia. And that was, that was one of the most heartbreaking things that they conveyed to me. And I think it says something about the power of information that we need to think about. It's not just about nuclear. It's about cyber capacity, and that's what changed it from the threat of a big bomb to the power of multiple small incendiary despised discontents building within multiple societies, where more becomes more appealing.
0: Thanks, Deborah. It's great to get your insights from kind of the insight, too, about. Um, What's happening in relation. So I'd now like to introduce my sister Susan Connelly to speak to us I have to
2: read really mine because um I've worked a long time on it and if I don't I might rave on and that would be terrible. Here we go. Now friends. Uh I was very interested in your comments, um uh, Deborah. Thank you very much. it's so true that Russia is the belligerent in the war against Ukraine. The attack should stop. The death and destruction is a monumental crime against humanity. However, the West, especially the United States are not without blames. The US has been agitating for Ukraine to become part of NATO for some time, despite resistance from Russia and the skepticism of NATO's European uh, members. I agree with Jeffrey Sachs, who recently said, he recently asked, what would happen if Mexico decided to enter into a military alliance with China? Would the US sit back and say, oh, well, that's Mexico's business? I strongly doubt it. And Cuba comes to mind. Vladimir Putin rules as a dictator and his political power is entrenched by his vice-like control of Russian media. All of this denies the Russian people information, enlightened legal processes and beneficial leadership. However, US interference in the affairs of other nations is a matter of historical fact, as as is the vast power and influence of sections of the media, such as the Murdoch statements. The US has interfered in country after country to overthrow or support regimes favorable to its business and strategic interests. To name a few in recent memory, Iran, Guatemala, Congo, South Vietnam, Chile, Nicaragua, Afghanistan, Iraq. Australia, unfortunately, is a lackey of the United States. We have been willing participants in its recent wars and interventions Understanding ourselves as a client, trading off with the US for our own security. Why was Darwin bombed by the Japanese in World War II? No reputable historian now believes that Japan intended to invade Australia. Darwin and surrounding areas were bombed to ensure that the United States could not use the Australian North. Such use of its strategic position would have thwarted Japanese plans for the zone of greater prosperity that they were planning, which would sweep down in an arc through the islands. Bombing the infrastructure in Australia's north was to cut off US possibilities at the knees. The worth of the north of Australia to the United States has not changed, as we know as the site of US military strength and intelligence capability is burgeoning. And the federal government is paying retired senior American American military officials up to $7,500 a day for advice on major defence projects. Even if it's only one or two, I was gobsmacked when I read. That, of course, is merely a footnote two decades of Australian subservience to the United States. I believe that Australia should undertake armed neutrality. This is an idea that has been around for quite some time and it well deserves serious consideration. But I say to you honestly, friends tonight, that I had never read it, it had never crossed my mind until Anzac Day this year. Now, I've looked up a few things. I don't know a huge amount about it, but I am going to look into it with great alacrity, I tell you. New- neutrality has United Nations status, and there's about 18 countries in the world, live uh, with some form of neutrality. There are different rules. A neutral Australia could not enter into treaties which oblige it to war. It could not supply arms to other nations, as is the case at present. It could not have foreign bases on its soil. And we would need to have very strong and stronger defence forces so as not to entice attack from others. Now, regarding the sale of arms, Australia generally conceals the identity of some nations to whom it sells arms. (laughs) It is known that we sell arms to Burkina Faso, Uganda and Zimbabwe. If sales are generally secret, how do we know that the weapons we make are not being used in Sudan at this very time? Or how do we know that they're not being unsold from other countries? Now, Australia is geographically well-placed to be neutral, with no land borders and that cover of distance. Being well-armed, we would be a dangerous place to attack. A neutral Australia would be free of US pressure to follow their policies. And as a result of not being seen as a puppet of US, Australia would have greater diplomatic clout in the region and beyond. Without US bases, Australia would no longer be a soft nuclear target for enemies of the United States as it is at present. Neutrality would force Australia to use its considerable wealth and expertise to combat the major current threat, change. It's time for Australia to seize the initiative In the 21st century, with the increasing possibility of nuclear war, Australia could choose active non-violent resistance and the vehicle for such resistance and non-violence would be armed neutrality. This would be a viable means of evading war, but it would also be a practical means of resisting the US, which has drawn us into wars and interventions with which we have, nothing, have had nothing to do with us, recently. We are labouring under the threat that the US will abandon us if we don't do their bidding. Now, that scenario has never been tested, as far as I know. When has Australia ever disagreed with the US, pushed back against its suggestions, its demands, or declined involvement in its illegal wars? Many Australians think that the ANZUS Treaty binds the US to come to Australia's aid if we are threatened. It does not. It merely requires the parties to consult together if anyone fears some threat, and to decide to do what to do according to each one's constitutional processes. Australia is now planning to purchase nuclear-powered submarines. How long would it be before we agree to nuclear-armed submarines? The world is facing the escalation to extremes, a phrase coined by René Girard, that wonderful French, French American philosopher in his 2010 book, <coughs> *Battling to the End. It was his last book. Now, Girard wrote in that book about Carl von Clausewitz, a brilliant 19th century military strategist, whose treatise on war is recognised as among the most influential studies of military analysis and strategy ever written. Klausowitz realised that the world was heading for ruin because of modern warfare's increasing capacity for harm. Now we know that the human tendency is for tit for tat, for revenge. Gerard believes that Klausowitz saw this And he saw that that tendency in human nature, coupled with advances in weaponry, could only lead to annihilation. As a result of his insight, Clausewitz pulled back. He didn't declare it in the treaties. He ended his book with some various sort of discussions about strategy. Now, when Rene Girard wrote his last book, he actually called it *Aschever Clausewitz*, completing. Clausewitz. In in English, the title is Battling to the End. A harrowing term, really. Jarron maintains that we are now facing the reality that Clausewitz sidestepped because of our nuclear capabilities. Our only human response to all this has to be non-violence. I believe Australia's embrace of non can really only be by way of armed neutrality. Now, the matter of Ukraine is important here. We've been assisting the Ukrainians with military hardware and rightly so, I believe. But it must be admitted that what we are doing is what the United States and so many others are doing. If we were really serious about assisting those peoples who have been attacked or invaded, why don't we do something about West Papua? Why do we stand by knowing that journalists and even the United Nations are not allowed into West Papua to see and report on what is going on? I went there in 2016 and I could not get out of there, I can tell. Why did we wait for 24 years to do something about East (coughs) Timor? Remember, we only moved after the Timorese seized the opportunity for a United Nations referendum, which tossed the Indonesians out. Don't start me on the spine. When my country finds the gumption, the guts, to stand on its own two feet instead of being tied to Uncle Sam's apron strings, then I will become a Republican. But as it stands and regardless of the huge enormous British shortcomings this coming weekend I will be eating coronation fish and cheering for Charles
0: III. Susan whenever you speak I, I really think inside myself I, I wish you could just develop a bit of a passion for the subject <laughs> uh, not only does Susan have passion for the subject but really she has this great research behind her. She's an amazing woman, thank you. And, and interestingly, there's a guy named David Martin, a uh, New Zealander. a little dated man. He wrote a book about how I'm um, Just sex
2: about oh, it, gesture.
0: Oh, no problem, do you mind? Oh, please. Thank you, Peter. Oh, really. um, so moving right along, thank you to um, other 12 of who's been speaking few speakers Taking a
3: little bit of a different tact of uh, Deborah and the Susan today, but uh, this morning I went to the see my physiotherapist and uh, I was standing outside the building waiting for the to open up. It was about quarter to seven this morning. I was had the earpods in my ear and uh, and the, uh, the therapist had turned up and I didn't hear him anyway. He says, "What are you doing?" I said, i was just listening to what, what's called news on the ABC." and uh, Anyway, and he said, What's happening in the news? And I said, Well, I did so just mentioned uh, Sudan. said, What's happening in Sudan? I just, this this has been going you know a couple of weeks now, at least, and you didn't have even heard about that. And I was just thought sort of, this is a sort of story where a lot of people are so ignorant of what's happening in our world, and makes it impossible for us to always even respond effectively. The <laughs> I was reading this morning, this is not, I, I, I'm not go longer, but I haven't written this down. I was reading an article this morning and I thought it's relevant to what we're talking about in terms of just war. But also, I think we should talk about just peace, not just war, but just peace. How do we make war irrelevant? Popes have been talking about war, Pope Francis, Benedict, John Paul II. War is always a failure, you know, always a failure. And this morning I was reading uh, an article by Cathy Kelly, a, I think she's Irish background, but she's a works in America, an activist, peace activist. And she's talking about, I won't get the whole thing, but she's talking about how in Spain, the Prime Minister Sanchez has taken over land, belonging for the Ministry of Defence to build 1,000 Homes. What a wonderful imagination is there. And the just war theory, as we've heard, goes back a long way, 1600 years or so, but it's not something that's restricted to the Catholic Church. Any conversation about this just war tradition, I believe, must also uh, connect with uh, what I call just peace. There's some literature there that I've written on that, if, if you're interested. It's an, alter- as an alternative to the just war doctrine. It's an alternative to the just war doctrine. And without it, I don't think peace is ever possible. And this is the piece that Pope Francis has outlined in Laudate C's document about uh, seven years ago. The way of the gospel nonviolence where justice and peace cultivated in ourselves, in our relationships, our social and political structures, our culture, Whilst always still resisting injustice and violence. In 2012, the World Council, as I've said before, it's not just a Catholic thing, the World Council of Churches published a document called The Just Peace Companion, which is meant to be used alongside another document called an ecumenical call to just peace. I just want to read something from it. It says, to care for God's precious gift of creation, and to strive for ecological justice are key principles of just peace. For Christians, they are also an expression of the gospel's call for repent from wasteful use of natural resources and be converted daily. Churches and their members must be cautious with Earth's resources, especially with water. It must protect the populations most vulnerable to climate change help to secure their rights. The Just Peace Companion from the World Council of Churches provides extensive direction on implementing just peace theology and practice by reviewing scripture, ethics, values, practices, human stories, prayer and so on to embody just peace within the Christian tradition and within the reality of our world. Pope Francis keeps stressing that faith and violence are incompatible. In 2014, he was talking to Shimon Peres, the Israeli Prime Minister and President of the Palestinians, Michael others, saying peacemaking calls for courage, much more so than, what, than warfare. It calls for the courage to say yes to encounter. We've heard, of, I think, talk about this evening already about how we engage to encounter and no to conflict, yes to dialogue and no to violence. Yes to negotiations and no to hostilities. The next year, in 2015, is it's not enough to talk about peace, but peace must be made. To speak about peace without making it is contradictory. Those who speak about peace while promoting war, a lot of that, especially in the United States, for example, through the sale of weapons, are hypocrites. It's very simple. So it turns our attention, or the French Pope is turning our attention always to Jesus' focus on mercy as the heart of shalom or peace and an alternative to violence. Calls war, not only Australia, but the suicide of humanity. We have to decide all the time, if we are people of faith different kind of faith, what God we believe? In. God of arms or the unarmed God. In 2016, I went to a, uh, Rome. It was an international um, conference there, organized and co-hosted by Pax Christi International, which is a peace organization that's been going for a little 77 years now, and also a catastrophe from the Vatican. And I understand it was the first time, first time that the Vatican had, had a, a co-hosted something with, with an NGO. It was unprecedented and it called or a Catholic nonviolence initiative. This is 2016, but it's ongoing all the time. And the aim was expressed by, the, uh, by a former Secretary-General of Pax Christi, he said, we need to go back to the sources of our faith and rediscover the non-violence, which is at the heart of the gospel. I mentioned earlier just peace. And that offers a vision and practice, a practice where peace is built as well as preventing, using healing the damage caused by violence. The Sermon on the Mount gives us numerous responses to abuse and domination. It's not about flight, it's not about a fight, it's not about accommodation, but it's about resisting violence without letting ourselves be contaminated by it. At that conference, it was about uh, uh, I think about 85 people and I wasn't, didn't want to go, but I was pushed to go. I was the only Australian to go there for this region, New Zealand and so on. And I said, I'd, I'd go if, if I could actually say something in terms of ditching the just war doctrine and asking Pope Francis to write an encyclical on non violence Well, the first speaker in this pool that we were around it was the very feisty little like, an Irish uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner, Marie uh, Wire. And she was going on and she, and she said, we've got to get the poll to ditch the Just War Doctrine and also the right encyclical <laughs> Well, it took the window and I said, well, that, was the, right. <laughs> that was the reason me wanted to go. Anyway, but what it is, and I think that's going to happen. It's probably going to happen. But I think the Pope has really been questioning this whole Doctrine over and over again. and Peter presented some of those principles that were part of that and they don't apply now with the weapons that we have. We see what's happening in Ukraine. We see innocents constantly being violated, infrastructure is destroyed and so on. But not only in the Ukraine, but in other places as well, as well as uh, Sudan and other places. But in Rome, I just want to say that senior church people and NGOs were engaged in a very, I think, open conversation about the alternative to war. This was later reflected in in what's called in the appeal to the Vatican, to recommit to the centrality of gospel nonviolence. The message to the conference, Pope Francis even said at the start of the conference, your thoughts on revitalising the tools of nonviolence, and of active nonviolence in particular, will be a needed positive contribution. Just war theory has often obstructed our attention and our imagination and will to commit non-violent practices. Now often do we hear our religious speakers, uh, religious leaders speak about or promote a non-violence resistance. They don't talk about boycotts, they don't talk about strikes, they don't talk about civil disobedience. They don't talk about injustice and violence. They don't talk about the enormous military spending. They don't talk, or they don't feel the need to illuminate the dignity of the so-called enemy. At this conference, there was no intention to invent anything new. I was, indicated already, it was to return, or if it was aimed to return to the source, sources, which was the experience of the early church. We didn't want, at this conference, a paragraph on non-violence within the Just War Doctrine. We wanted to question a doctrine often used to condone war rather than to prevent or restrain. We didn't want to promote theories of just war, but to promote non-violent practices and strategies. We made that clear in our summons as an appeal to the Catholic Church to recommit to the centrality gospel uh, uh, possible, a few copies of that there on the table as well. The conference in 2015 was largely ignored. As I came back to Australia, I found that hardly anyone knew about it. I even rang the Australian Catholic bishops; I didn't know. About it. 85 people from 35 countries, many active in peace work and human rights, were determined. Already saying to move our church towards toward an understanding of and commitment to non violence away from that doctrine, of just war. These people came from South Africa, they came from South Sudan, they came from Uganda, Kenya, Afghanistan, the Philippines, Croatia, Italy, Palestine, Iraq, Australia, USA, Colombia, and Mexico. Each with their own non-violence experiences, but also these people were the ones who had paid the price. They had seen their families and colleagues also murdered. They had been imprisoned themselves, and yet they were the ones who kept saying over and over again that non-violence still works. There's enough. There's enough documentation by people like Erica Chenoweth and uh, Maria Stephan who uh, are policy. Uh, uh, Experts and so on would say that more, uh, more non-violence has work more, twice as much, as violent, uh, violence. So the message was quite clear, just war is not working. An Iraqi religious woman, a nun, claimed just war is killing us. There is no such thing. has witness members of a religious community die for lack of medical care during war asking which of the wars we have been is a just war. In my country, there is no just war. War is the mother of ignorance, isolation and poverty. Please tell the world there is no such thing as a just war. I say this as a daughter of war. The aim of the conference was to listen to what people in conflict and and violent situations have to say about the place of nonviolence in society, also, church teaching. We need to take serious account the unconscionable collateral damage which traditional considerations of just, just war shielded, if not deflected, public view for too long. Just war has been interpreted as a male—I might be corrected on that—but as a male-centred ethical understanding. Little wonder it's taken so long for the deficit. Of women's voices, women's critique, and women's opposition to the spurious claims, of this doctrine. It seems shameful, it's taken so long, the various limit, very serious limitations of the tradition, of this theory, of this adjustable theory. It wasn't named, wasn't noticed, or reacted against. What's needed, I think, is also is that is leadership. And we tried to do this in, in, uh, in Sydney a few years ago, leadership on strategic non-violence and training conflict resolution. The study of the principles of active peacemaking, support for unarmed civilian protection teams. Protection of public stands against violence by bishops and priests, preaching on gospel non-violence and standing shoulder to shoulder with people in the streets. Many people would say what I'm saying is probably naive and not very practical. But we know that war is not very practical either. Very Just over 60 years ago, as we came so close to being involved in a nuclear fireball, Pope John XXIII appealed to President Kennedy, Premier Nikita, Nikita Khrushchev. He said, We beg all governments not to remain deaf to this cry of humanity. They do all this in their power to save peace. They will thus spare the world from the horrors of the war, whose terrifying consequences no one can well, God, living in that kind of world because of money. In April 1963, a year later, Pope issued his prophetic encyclical letter, Punch in Terrace or Peace on Earth. A couple of weeks ago, it was the 60th anniversary of that for an end to the arms race, to the reduction of stockpiles of weapons, the banning of nuclear weapons, along with the employment of mutual effective controls. Magically, that appeal to justice, the right reason and consideration for human dignity and life has been largely ignored. Big money, as we now in Sister Scots, I think we hinted at that also, is a gigantic obstacle here. War making and war preparation is extremely lucrative business, especially for arms producing corporations. 60 years after John XXIII's puncture in Paris, Francis, Pope Francis renews his message, denounces war as madness. Beyond reason, he asks us to make nonviolence a guide for our actions, both in daily life and in international relations. Even in cases of self-defence, the ultimate goal must always be peace, even when it seems distant, because a lasting peace can exist only without weapons. Rachel says on this, this regarding disarmament at all levels, that we need to disarm on all levels, personal, social and international. Peace begins in the most concrete and intimate part of our hearts we meet neighbours in our streets, and we see their faces, especially those who come from different places, those who don't speak our language, those who don't share our culture, those with different attitudes. War and conflict begin, here and now, as Francis, in our hearts. Jesus reveals the true way of peace, invites us to follow him. In this spirit, if we call to disarm ourselves, the sense of disarming in our everyday relationships and beyond, our words, our actions, there are undeclared ongoing wars on so many fronts intentionally pitched against the humanity of people, especially women. Then, of course, there are also those undeclared wars against the humanity of Indigenous peoples the wars that are fueled by blatant greed and racism and imperialism. Indigenous peoples have had their communities ravaged as young men eager for life chances like no other. A figure for life seduced by military myths around patriotism. This service honestly crafted, cleverly deployed so as to secure our loyalty, State. Catherine Siena and said, speak the truth in a million voices. It's the silence that kills. Her words are still haunting words, as we notice how much silence there is, how it continues to grow. Janine Gravick, another American sister who has worked for decades with the LGBTIQ people and suffered in the church, says, one kind of violence not recognized is
0: the violence of silence, and we can't remain silent. So thank you to all our speakers tonight. I'm um, truly um, liberating with me. It was really great to hear those voices and uh, excellent presentations from some different speakers. Let I me mean, have a, a little chat that might um, between ourselves about some of the issues that were raised in that. Um, I'd just want like to tell you about the experience that I had some years ago. Um, in Australia, we are so blessed that we don't have a war on our, on our home soil. And you know, at sixty five years of age, I've I've been lucky to avoid the Vietnam War and many of the, the conflicts that we've been engaged in. But I was invited by the Jewish Board of Deputies a few years ago to, to go on a, a state tour of Israel and Palestine, and and we visited politicians because there are people who have had horrible experiences over there and a the conflict that's been so ongoing. And then on the last night, we all went out to dinner. There was a whole group of us. And as we were walking back, we heard of all the conflicts and there had been years since there was any violence at this stage. two thousand 2018, I think. And so there had been no problems over there. There was always unrest. And suddenly, that night, while I was in Tel Aviv, I heard sirens. And looked up into the sky, missiles were being launched into Tel Aviv from the Gaza Strip for the first time in something like eight or nine years. Scared. It's the first time in my life I experienced that, and suddenly the reality of being in that kind of situation. You know, I was quite safe in a sense. Yeah, I heard it. Um, it really brought that experience home to me. So. One of the questions I have for our panel tonight is, and I agree with all the things that have been said, but Gabriel, you talked about uh, the trifecta of peace, security, and prosperity. And sometimes I think there can be uh, a conflict in that. As I was reflecting on this group the other night, I was, I was sitting saying some prayers, and my phone rang, and it was a family who had been friends of mine for some time. They've a little girl. And she said, Hi, Petey, how are you? We came away, put the phone down after talking to them, and I thought, what would happen if little Madeline was staying at my place or had come to my home for dinner and somebody came through the door to do violence to her? What would I do? I think of myself as a peaceful person, Irene, pacifist perhaps. Maybe that might change my state. Security and peace are sometimes a conflict. So I'm asking if you would like to comment about that. And I'm just going back to a few years ago,
3: uh, general, Pax Christy was in Australia, she was a former prime minister of Haiti, from LA, and she had a few talks around Sydney, and I think that's what she's connected, and I really believe that. She said, if you ask somebody in the West, what peace means to you, they'll be talking about walls and armaments and all those sorts of things, you know? bank balances, the bank, uh, bank, bank accounts, and those sorts of things. If you ask somebody from the South, what does peace mean to you? They would be saying education, health care, and those sorts of things. And I think that's where, that, that's where I see the conflict. Because we have different notions of peace and what it means. And uh, and I, I, I tend to side with, with what she said in terms of peace. And, and, and I'm thinking about justice too. It's about the environment, it's about how we care for the age. How so we care for the homeless people, we care for our First Nations people, all minority groups, and so on. If we don't have to do that, then because the piece that many of us have in our minds is making sure that
1: we're safe in terms of financial. Thank you, and uh, it's wonderful to sort of step outside the world that I operate in and come and get some food for the journey. You know, I've I, I been great parishes, but uh, I have to say that being in schools. Uh, studying here in Herodot, people like the Sister and Father Speed, is harder to come by in the Parliament than in other <laughs> communities that I've been a part Absolutely. of. Um, security and peace in our place and in our time, because there's always the lure of speaking about these things in the abstract, and we can get very excited about that. I guess at the mention of First Nations people, my mindfulness at the moment about the challenge of the referendum is really a moment in an undeclared war for First Nations people in Australia, and we talk uh, as as a non-First Nations person. Uh, we talk as as if we have not experienced it, but we're actually living it alongside people who were here before us. They are still suffering the impact of imperialist design, and while we can applaud the sort of peace, that parliamentary system inherited uh, based on, you know, the radical gospel of the rights of each individual person, you know, manifest through a democratic tradition. i would been celebrating that. What is the challenge for us in terms of our responsibilities, people of faith, in this moment, to speak for those who are calling for peace in our own country? We only have to look at the profound levels of incarceration the Level of self harm, the level of removal from education, domestic violence—all the indicators of the incredible intergenerational trauma existing in the country. Alongside what I would be happy to describe in my life as a rather peaceful and happy existence, war is in our midst. We just don't call it is our And I say that with the mindfulness as the daughter of Irish Republicans, immigrants to this country who failed the undeclared war in the north of Ireland in my lifetime. But what does an undeclared war look like? And, Sister, you really made me think about that concept of post-war peace and what that might look like. Right now we're talking about, you know, truth, treating justice, a voice for the people of Timor-Leste. When the war, when, when the arms are laid down and the trauma lingers, when power enters into those countries, the scripts of how-to, instruction manuals that come raining down from my life, there's another incredible challenge to peace because it's not stitched together by other people's words or other cultures' words or other places' and other times' words. It's hard-line find. finding of our own words in our own time, in our own place, if dare I say uh, repentance, which is a little different to the word sorry It's become a little solid and thinking recent times. Hour of sorrows, is deluded somehow. That we need a bit more of rugged repentance. And maybe our uh, acts of contrition lead up to the to the referendum in October is action our for peace for our fellow Australians who are all those of us who are not suffering so much in this country.
2: Yes well thank you as you as you were talking I was remembering I've just read a beautiful piece by David Tacey. And it it came home to me and he brought it home so much as the tremendous example of non-violence that our Aboriginal people have given us, and they haven't put bombs in the town halls. They haven't run around. I know there was a a resistance. I think it's really important not to say they were just a walkover when we came in. They did resist, but the way things were must have been terrible. The Indigenous people now, they're going through all the right channels, our channels, basically. And it reminds me of the Timorese people. I don't know whether you're aware, but in the whole 24 years of the Indonesian occupation, not a single Indonesian civilian was murdered by a Timorese. And that's something that they are hugely proud of. Josie Ramoswater mentions that. And there were plenty of Indonesians there. They ran all the schools. There they were plenty to kill. The, 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 the Fregnant soldiers killed some Indonesian soldiers, but not, not. A, that, that's a great lesson to me. And it's that resistance. Um, but, you know, when you were talking, Claude too, I was thinking about the power of the gospel message of nonviolence, but I think sometimes we misunderstand it. I've only just recently, in the last couple of years, realised or been taught by Walter Wink the meaning of Jesus' instructions, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give your cloak as well. Do you know what he says? Claude, would you mind? We'll demonstrate. Come on, Claude. This is what Claude Wink says. <laughs> now, in that culture, of yeah, my course. Water, my water. <laughs> But that culture, <laughs> your book has it. My book. It's yours, I've got his book. In that culture, the left hand was used for toileting purposes. So you would never use the right hand for anything else, you know, for that. And the right hand was, so the left became the sinister, right? The left is sinister. Okay. So if I come up to Claude and I want to, as St. Matthew says in his gospel, If someone comes and wants to hit you on the right cheek, Matthew specifically says right, Luke does not. But Matthew, writing for a Jewish audience, says if someone comes to hit you on the right cheek, but he's got to do it with his right hand, so what's it got to be? It's got to be a backhander to hit you on the right cheek. Now, Jesus is not saying, look, be a little wuss and just turn the other (laughs) cheek and not do anything. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. The only way that person can hit you on the electric is as an equal, okay? It's not the demeaning backhand that is used for women and slaves and others who are better. You're, what you're saying, I'm as good as you. If you're going to hit me, you do it as an equal. You don't own me and I don't owe you anything. Now, what about the, the one, go the, the extra mile? This is fascinating. If Walter Ringer's is right, I think he is, he looked into it. Roman soldiers were allowed to commandeer anybody to take their baggage and their arms and their everything and to carry it for a mile, a stadium. He'd say, you, get up here and take my thing. So off we go. And he walks for a mile. Now he was obliged to then get somebody else because it wasn't to take you two miles, okay? So you say to him, oh, no sir, no, no, I will carry the extra mile for you. And he thinks, oh my God, somebody's going to report me. No, no, you leave it there. You no, know, he doesn't want to be reported. You've put that Roman soldier on his back foot. So Jesus is not saying be really a, you know, a cringing sort of a person. Think up something according to your culture that will assert your equality. And as for the cloak... The uh, Matthew says, if someone takes you to court, I don't expect you to <laughs> demonstrate this law. You can sit down now uh, The court had two items of clothing, tunic and a cloak. And if they owed money, well, the cloak could be taken in for collateral. So he's up before the court in his tunic and his cloak. And the fellow says, all right, then you've got to give that cloak. And the, voice, the person says, oh, you can have my tunic as well. And they say, no, no, because he'd been naked. And in that culture, it was worse to see a naked person than to be a naked person. So they say, no, don't take it. But he's put the whole system back. Here, you want me cloak? Have me tunic as well, and he walks off naked. So Jesus is not saying, don't stand up for yourself. But he's not advocating violence. All of those are non-violent resistances. Now, we've got to think about what we do in our in our situation. And, look, I love Americans. I mean, I think Americans are great, but I think
0: their system is terrible. So we have to stand up to them. Is that right? That's it's correct, Susan. I, I, I'm just so glad that you didn't get um, all to demonstrate what it's like if you take your tunic off as yeah. <laughs> well. Just, just one other thing that I, I'd like us perhaps to discuss, because I know we're running out of time. I was hoping that we'd have a lot more questions. But you, one of my, my issues about the armed neutrality thing is that I believe that there's already injustice done in our army. Now, I don't want this to be party political That's, I think that's most important tonight. But We're talking about uh, philosophical and faith issues. But you know, it's all very well for us to be armed and to be spending money on armaments, but there's a huge cost to report. Spending money on armaments, it isn't. Oh, no. Well, but in that context of art, we armed neutrality. We keep arming and arming and arming for weapons that we never want to use. You know, it's like the old days of what, what was the phrase, mad? Mutual assured destruction. It's okay, let's all build up these weapons of mass destruction, uh, but we'll never use them. We'll never use nuclear weapons. Of course, we already have. That's another point. Uh, but, you know,
2: Yes. It's huge cost to reach. That's true. And, um, you know, the, the talk about having the arms is to have as a deterrent, And, you know, how you really um, protect an indefensible coastline? I do not know. But, however, but look, I think the most important thing about this is for serious talk to go on about it. But I'm hugely excited by it. I know it's got holes. Uh, And there are different types of neutrality. There's transient neutrality and uh, permanent neutrality. You seem to know. Would you like to say something?
1: I want to say that neutrality attracts me, right? The arm part, I agree with Peter. So what I'm waiting for is for you to dig a bit more and discover and let us know in another space just what you come up with.
2: Well, I, I would love to because I think it is Really exciting. Every person that I've spoken to on the phone, less than ten, I must say, have said, "Oh, what a good idea!" So it's it's and the fact that I had never read it, I tell you honestly, I had not. And I think other people, and that's something like a tipping point. You know, Kenneth and Stephen talk about the tipping point when something gets it just sort of grows, and then all of a sudden it gets to the thing. Now look. There's a whole lot of implications about this that I do not know I'm talking about ignorance. A good idea needs to be given serious consideration.
3: One of the uh, most exciting things, hasn't been tried very often, was Costa Rica, after it just had a war Mm. with one of its neighbours, decided to get rid of its military.
2: It doesn't have a standing army. It's
3: about the only country that I know of in the world that's done this are huh? about thirty of them. They okay. have no armies. Now, okay, yeah. okay. Anyway, this one stands out. yeah, thank you, and uh, stands out. I think you know we've got to you know use our imaginations, and, and the, you know because we're not going to be a threat to anyone. You know that others might be a threat to us. I don't think. You know, and I think this applies also to China, week. Costa Rica, since 1948,
2: has not had a standing army. Yes. So, can you tell us more, um, some
0: of the, sorry, uh, but she
1: mentioned 30 like <laughs> At the Raising Peace events, we've uh, had the ambassador from uh, Costa Rica speak, uh, Mr Vargas. He's going back to Costa Rica at the end of the year. He's the most passionate
2: speaker you can have for disarmament and that you don't need a standing army. Um, and of course the question is, well, how oh, has Costa Rica, why is it still existing? Why hasn't it been taken over? Diplomacy and negotiations. Yes. It's
1: the most stable and wealthy country in the whole Central America. Families from all other countries send their children to boarding school
2: in Costa Rica because of the risk of violence and abduction of children in other countries. Um, they've done very well and we've got a lot to learn. And if you want a guess guest speaker,
0: you know, one of the other interesting things about Costa Rica, is that their economy has grown exponentially over the last few years.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm really mindful of uh, the political example of Sacha Graha from, from Gandhi. Do you know, the quiet resistance, and as I've read his autobiography, and as I understood him, he he grew up in Goa the place of collisions of different cultures because it was a very significant trade port. One of the ways to uh, ensure that your family business would survive if people didn't want to pay was not for them to put them into voluntary administration or anything like that. Actually, you don't just sit at the door of the business, sit at the door of the business, and ultimately, again, you sat at the door of the business with the salt marches. Different kind of business, but it brought people undone. So that, 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 I think that's kind of a real-life, in our time political manifestation exactly the kind of a standing the ground resistance that you're de- demonstrating i was very enamored of the idea of armed neutrality and what's very funny for me is how much i feel that is actually embedded in the discussions that we have about australia's place in the indo-pacific in the parliament for, for all of the importance of the u.s alliance it is not the only alliance that we have you know, we're part of PIF with Pacific regions engaging with that and you can see a massive reinvigoration of that. Um, we've had policy positions put to us in recent times about citizenship for Pacifics nations sharing in Australia. These are radical concepts. Uh, um, maybe it's been like you're in, a bit like opportunity, tuning, give more than we've been asked for. Uh, how do we operate out of that or of abundance rather than the poor city all the time? But um, there was a, an article in the paper just recently to indicate that Japan you now is the site of the latest NATO presence. We're seeing another embassy there. there. Uh, and NATO have a presence here in Australia. for the first time uh, in, not last year, I think it might have been the end of last year, but early last year, um, NATO came and a presentation to the Foreign Defense and Trade Committee about their presence in the region, the understanding of the intersection. Intersectionality that we're all very aware of, of trade and supply chains and interruption to supply chains, and I think it would be false to underplay the threat to peace internationally of the acts of physical aggression that are the statements of claim to the South China Sea, growing exponentially, being made by the Chinese. And I can tell you, I have documented my position. I've kept it. I've taken home and to my own children. After a briefing by a Chinese delegation they were talking about all of these treaties that they had in different countries around Asia. And I asked them for a copy at the end, and it was the most doggy set of you know, photocopy pages. And, and one of them was a, an agreement signed up by Ho Chi Minh. And it was a trumped-up set of documents to prove ownership of that space. And I think Australia's sort of visceral response to the purchase of the Port of Darwin by China it was a, there's a whole lot of political things we could say about that. But the reality is the Belt and Road Initiative, the dedication to it, the funding of it, the strategic engagement with particular nations, establishment of relationships of financial servitude are a confronting reality that we cannot ignore. Absolutely peaceful. Uh, armed neutrality is a wonderful disposition or orientation for us to think about that. But armed neutrality embedded in a authentic, respectful, multilateral connection with others in our region and around the world, we declare and work for peace. Do you mind if I just respond quickly? Look, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I
2: agree. I have known communist China and what it's done to the Uyghurs just makes my threshold, basically. <laughs> but I suppose. I think it, what's good enough for the goose is good enough for the gander. That's that they're out to control. But so are we to a certain extent, so are the United States. Like it's all and it, it comes back to Gourade. Uh, we imitate each other's desires. We imitate and then when we don't get what we want, we get into rivalry and then the whole thing collapses into violence and then we find a scapegoat and then we start the whole stupid process all over again. It's bad. So
1: it's... That one, I just want you to hear the story because I promised the Ukrainians I would tell it everywhere I had an audience. That the reality of the horror of what's happening over there was best described to me in this way that there, you'd be aware that there was a recovery of parts of the southeast of the Ukraine post the Russian um, step back. It's hard to say this, but they talked to me about finding dozens and dozens of torture rooms and the bodies children in these rooms and in mass graves nearby. It's not just happening in Ukraine, we've talked about Sudan, we've talked about it's East to and, the so and it's all the, that. the horror of that war is now very, very well documented already and the cases are already been prepared for international courts which deal with war and that is an important thing we've established that. But, um, I, I just wanted to share that awful fact with you at least you don't find out about it because the media won't be covering yeah? it. It's not some papers anymore.
2: Let's hope Russia is called to account because yes. Indonesia wasn't.
0: Senator Deborah O'Neill, thank you very much.